Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. In 2020, events have yet again shone a light on racial inequalities across the globe. Australia is not an exception. Twenty years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now. Not ever. I mean, these comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. G'day, I'm Mark Kenny, and this is Democracy Sausage Extra. And given that we are getting quite close to the end of a year and uh, the end of this year and what a year it's been, I thought it would be good to do a little bit of a review, uh, think about uh, how all of these things have played out and, and particularly from the sort of political standpoint, what it tells us about where we are, what it tells us about the government, the opposition, some of the issues that have been running. And there's no better person to do that with than David Spears. He's been on this podcast before, of course. He's a multiple award winner, Walkley Award winner, Press Gallery Journalist of the Year, and these days, of course, host of Insiders on ABC. Welcome back, David. G'day, Mark. Great to have you on Democracy Sausage, as always. Look, let's uh, let's just get straight into it here and talk about um, uh, some of the main elements of this year from that political perspective. And I think the best place to start is to talk about Scott Morrison, how he's gone. And in a minute, we'll get on to, on to his opponent, Anthony Albanese, as well. But um, just on Morrison, uh, he's right at the moment, of course, in uh, self-isolation in the lodge as we record this uh, been attending uh, Question Time on a video monitor, which has worked about as well as a lot of video conferencing has worked (laughs) throughout the year for lots of us. Uh, You know, they eventually got on top of it. Um, But, uh, yeah, quite an interesting year. Very little travel. He's done that one trip to Japan, which is why he was in isolation at the lodge. Uh, But for the rest of the year, it's been completely bizarre, of course. Um, How do you think he's gone overall? Look, I think it's fair to say he's finishing the year in a much stronger position than where he began. When we look at 2020, we have to, of course, go back to the bushfires and what a horrible summer that was, not only for the many Australians affected by it, but politically 
for Scott Morrison as well, there were real doubts about his famed political judgment, given his uh, holiday in Hawaii and and, uh, and the way he um, you know carried himself when he came back and tried to recover ground. Then along comes COVID, uh, and it, it has been in a political sense uh, an opportunity for him to recover, and he's done more than that, hasn't he? I mean, look, th- there have clearly yeah. been mistakes along the way, um, and I think it is interesting to, to you know think back, reflect on what some of these mistakes were, uh, you know, and how he dealt with them as well has been interesting as well. I mean, early on, he, I think he misread the mood, sent the wrong message when he said he wanted to go to the footy, for example, and that really dominated for a little while there. Uh, he resisted the state border closures for a long time. He fought against the, the WA one in particular. He didn't think schools should be shut down. He resisted that strongly. His minister, Dan Teen, was out there fighting the case very strongly. But I think in in each of these cases, Morrison did end up either capitulating in the end or realising that he was on the wrong side of the uh, public opinion on these things or indeed the wrong side, in fact, of of where Australia needed to be. So, yes, in some of these cases um, and on the economic front as well. I mean, you could argue JobKeeper should have kicked in a couple of weeks earlier than it did. But in the end, he finally gets there, I think, with most of these things one way or another. Uh, and by any international comparison, Australia's done well on the health and the economic front. And I think for Scott Morrison, ultimately, that uh, that leaves him looking a, a political winner. A lot of credit does have to go to the States, and we can get to that. Uh, but, you know, for a prime minister in this situation, uh, there's no doubt uh, that he will be judged to have done a pretty good job this year. And the polls seem to be suggesting that's the case. He's got a very strong approval rating for a sitting prime minister, around 66%, I think I read the other day, uh, whereas his opponent, Anthony Albanese, is in, uh, you know, much lower, down, down at about 28%, I think. So, um, you, uh, you normally have prime ministers ahead of opposition leaders, uh, when it comes to these sorts of things. It's this sort of, resting normal i guess you'd call it uh, but but yeah going back to uh, some of those things you mentioned it was a terrible start to the year and we've made this point before on democracy sausage but it was almost because of how disastrous politically was his hawaii trip and his explanation of it the fact they tried to keep it secret and 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 repelled uh, calls from journalists as to where the prime minister was and was it true that he was overseas and all these sorts of things and you know, they, he effectively snuck out of the country, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, but normally, um, when prime ministers travel, there are, uh, you know, statements issued to, to the media explaining that, but this had all been done surreptitiously and then it flared up, of course. He comes back, the bushfire situation is worse and his, failure to explain it to his attitude i don't hold a hose mate and all these sorts of things did not go down well so that part of it's a given and you've you've already referred to that but then corona comes along and it's almost because of how badly he's been wounded by the bushfire handling that there's a sense that you can almost see in in morrison he's he's had a glimpse of his political mortality and he knows he has to do better. He knows he has to show some real leadership. And there's a happy coincidence there that the country really needs some real leadership as well. And we and we get a bit of that uh, from early on, notwithstanding, as you say, quite a number of uh, areas in which he perhaps initially misstepped. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. I mean, the, the capacity of Morrison to learn from the mistakes of the summer bushfires, yeah. this has been remarked on, you know, in your podcast and, and elsewhere this year. That was quite something to observe and I think 
uh, you know, a, a notable feature of Scott Morrison as Prime Minister. Not many Prime Ministers managed to learn from their mistakes, and this was a whopper, what happened with the Hawaii holiday and, and generally the handling of the bushfire response. You know, a, a moment of national crisis that Australians do look to their national leader for, um, you know, for comfort, security and leadership. And, and so the ability to learn from that was was really quite notable, quite interesting, uh, quite important in the story of Scott Morrison's prime ministership. And I think it did mean that he really threw everything into COVID when it came along. Yes, you know, I noted some of the mistakes that he's made along the way here, but but let's not forget, you know, he was pretty prompt in declaring this to be a pandemic from Australia's point of view, well ahead of the World Health Organization or most other countries, shutting the border to um, uh, travellers from China uh, and then, you know, one Creating the National Cabinet. Yeah, all uh, creating the National Cabinet. I mean, these were all front foot initiatives from the Prime Minister that were important, unquestionably were important. And yes, he may have, you know, you could argue he was dragged into JobKeeper, but he got there eventually. He is the leader of the government, they got there. And this was critical in protecting Australians uh, through this. So, you know, yes, credit where it's due for the way he's uh, he's handled um, all of that. By by all means, not perfect. Uh, and and we, can, we can go to some of that. But, you know, you, you do need to acknowledge uh, the seriousness, I suppose, with which he took COVID from an early point. That's in stark contrast to obviously Donald Trump at the other end of the spectrum, but even other leaders like Boris Johnson and you know, uh, plenty of other leaders who really quibbled, um, hesitated about about how serious to take this global threat. Yes, I think that's right. And and the National Cabinet's a really important uh, moment because although he did make a number of those uh, mistakes on on individual calls, and I think, you know, as you said, the the declaration of going to the footy was, was also quite egregious because it happened on a on a Friday that he was announcing that as from the following Monday there would be this prohibition on 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 gatherings of more than five hundred people, and yet in the interim he proudly proclaimed that he was going to be going to the footy and indeed encouraged other people if you don't have a sniffle, go along to the footy as well, which was just a very mixed message. And and he subsequently went to the footy again at at some point. Um, well, yeah, and the I, opposition I that, was on his side to begin with on that question. I might say. Yeah, I, I think that really, I mean, he said something this week in Parliament in welcoming the good news on the, um, the economic growth that, that we saw for the September quarter. Uh, uh, he, he indicated, and I think rightly, that the comeback, he said, is underway, is built on the strong public health responses that have been put in place all around the country. They were his words in Parliament this week, really, I think, giving credit to the states without saying as much, but all Australians for getting it right on the health front. In other words, we all know this now. You can only have economic success with this pandemic if you you, you you confront and fix and suppress the health problem. That wasn't always Scott Morrison's approach, to be fair. I think going into this, and the footy moment was uh, really an example of it, but there are plenty of others, where he was overly concerned about the economic impact this would have on a lot of vulnerable Australians. His position on the schools, on the borders as well, this was all Scott Morrison really trying to protect as much of the economy as he could. And he copped a lot of flack at the time from those who thought he was, uh, you know, just trying to protect the uh, the economic figures so that the, the government wouldn't cop it down the track. But I do think it was genuine on his part that he was generally worried about, you know, vulnerable Australians losing jobs and losing their, their position in the labour market, uh, you know, for quite some time, if not permanently. Now, 
I think where we sit now, we all know, we all understand, including the Prime Minister, that you really do need to tackle the, the virus first. Otherwise, your economy's not going to have a chance. Look at what's happening in Europe. Look at what's happened in the United States. Look at what's happened around the world. Where the virus comes back, if you don't keep it under control, your economy will ultimately suffer. Yeah, and it was interesting that for a while, as you say, that this issue kind of teetered on the edge of of falling into that political taxonomy, um, that that problem that we have with climate change as an issue, for example, where um, one side takes one position and the other side takes another, and never the twain shall meet. You know, it's um, uh, it, it was a bit like that. There was uh, there was a sense that you know on the left uh, there was in you know. Uh, uh, there was favour to lockdowns and to you know really really strong action on the health front, and on the right there was this sort of economy argument. We've seen that play out in the US, you know, where everything got politicised, even around Corona, around wearing masks and lockdowns and the like. Um, and Australia could have gone that way because there was, as you pointed out before, quite a spirited debate about school closures and. Dan T and I think even on your show on Insiders got got quite um, strong on that at one stage. Uh, you know, so some of Morrison's ministers were were playing a lot of hardball, and that's why I go back to the national cabinet. I think it was important because it, it overlaid uh, on the whole political situation a calming cooperative effect, and um, and to to an extent it 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 inhibited Morrison in. In, um, in playing the normal sort of tough verbal politics that would get played. Some of his ministers did, but Morrison himself mostly stepped back from that kind of thing. And that kept the National Cabinet functional and it kept, um, I think, the temperature of political exchange between the levels of government at a manageable uh, level. And, uh, and as such, uh, we did get a number of those really what we now know in hindsight to have been really critical decisions, mostly by state governments, but facilitated through that, as I say, that kind of more cooperative problem-solving approach to politics. I think that's right. There was a few points to make about this whole National Cabinet experience. Um, I remember early in the year when Wuhan was shut down and a lot of us were looking at that thinking, can you imagine, can you imagine shutting yeah. down an entire city like that, locking people in their homes? And we all were aghast that, you know, these, uh, the Chinese Communist Party was able to do this. No other country would be able to do that. Uh, little did we know that this would hit us in the way that it did and that we would be compliant in similar shutdowns. And many might argue, in fact, in the Victorian case, uh, certainly a more prolonged, uh, in that sense, uh, severe shutdown than even Wuhan went through. I, I don't think many would have expected that Australian the Australian people would be willing to subject themselves. And, yes, there are, of course, those at the fringes of the left and the right who didn't didn't agree with it and, you know, made that clear and, and, and did silly things. But the, the, the vast bulk of Australians went along with this. I think a lot of the reason for that is what you, you touch on there, Mark, this confidence that, that was instilled by leaders coming together, putting politics to one side, state and federal, sitting around the table, going through in detail what you're allowed to do, what you weren't allowed to do, what was going to be closed and when, this cooperative approach. Now, having said that, I think a lot of us, myself included probably, invested too much hope that this new model, this new approach to national cooperative leadership might lead to breakthroughs on long overdue tax reform, federation reform, climate change uh, action. Mm. I think we expected too much, given the reality of our political system, from this new national cabinet mm. formulation. But it was important. It did the job in dealing with this pandemic. You're also right, though, to point out that 
we saw Morrison ministers uh, let off the leash to go after the states, whether it was Dan Tian on the schools front, where don't forget they even uh, were were threatening and I, th- I think in, in practice uh, taking funding away from private schools where they could uh, that didn't keep their doors open. Uh, Peter Dutton let off the leash to go after Anastasia Palaszczuk over border closures in uh, in Queensland. Josh Frydenberg leading the charge against Dan Andrews in Victoria. So while Morrison kept his hands clean sitting around the National Cabinet table to a, to a large extent, certainly his senior figures were uh, let off the leash to go after the states. Yes, and it's interesting that uh, that point you make about uh, lockdowns and how severe they looked at the beginning and how we came to accept them. There's been a fair bit of commentary about that. Uh, what's, what, what does it say about Australians uh, that mm-hmm. we were so compliant, uh, so obedient? I think it wasn't so much obedience as a, a relatively high level of confidence in expertise. And I think most people could actually see the same evidence that the experts were were uh, being shown and were showing political leaders. And there was a shared commitment that we needed to sort of divide and separate, if I could put it like that, um, to stop the virus transmitting. And, and yes, we did have that uh, early success, and I think that was important. Then we had the Victorian setback, and a very severe setback it was. But what a remarkably different situation we find ourselves in now. And it is showing up in, uh, I think, um, confidence in the federal government, confidence in the Prime Minister, even though you would say the heavy lifting of most of uh, the measures uh, in terms of uh, getting on top of this virus have been imposed by the states. Um, you know, yeah, they have. They have. And plenty, I, plenty of Morrison critics have been eager to point that out. Yeah, they have. Look, another reason for the compliance with all of this, I think, is because of what we witnessed uh, soon after the, the, the initial phase of the virus in Wuhan, what we witnessed in uh, Italy in particular and those scenes of the hospitals just uh, unable to cope with the number of people requiring ventilators, the scenes of people dying on the scale that they were. I think the genuine fear of the virus had a big role to play uh, in this. That yeah. point. Um, the, the states, uh, this has been the fascinating political uh, story of the year as well. A reminder of how our federation works, a reminder that the states do have enormous power uh, and that they're willing to use it and that they're willing to certainly capitalise on the political benefit of using that power as well. Um, it's you know been a reminder, I think, not just to Australians but to the Morrison government as well. Uh, you know, as I suggested earlier, it, with the border closures, don't forget that the Morrison government was joining in on the Clive Palmer appeal against WA's border closure there for a while. Yeah. It rapidly changed course when it realised it was very much on the wrong side of this politically uh, and, and backed right out of that High Court case. So, um, you know, these border closures, the, the heavy restrictions that have been imposed in some jurisdictions, certainly where I am in Victoria, um, the states were able to do this. They did it. Uh, and you, you can argue that it absolutely worked. I can tell you that the, the popularity figures for Dan Andrews uh, are now uh, enormous in this state. And a lot of that has to do with the situation we're now in, where, as we speak, the virus has been eliminated in, in Victoria. So I think all that hard work that people have done, uh, they, they now acknowledge it was worth it. Yes, they do. Although I was uh, moving around Parliament House yesterday and talking to a number of senior Victorian members of the government, and they are still very strong on this argument that went to went on too long, and that the tail of it in terms of um, mental health presentations and other uh, other health complications or conditions that went untreated or um, or undetected in some cases that there's there's a very sort of 
large hidden cost uh, or legacy cost of this lockdown that is yet to be paid uh, by a lot of people. Yeah, and look, there are still questions uh, about, let's let's be frank, the failures that uh, were evident in the early stage, the, or the failures that led to this second wave, hotel quarantine, and perhaps the bigger one, the failure of adequate contact tracing uh, in Victoria. Look, you know, these problems have now been uh, addressed, we are told, and we're certainly seeing that in the evidence of the, the daily results and the good news. But yeah, there are still questions about all of that and, you know, how scientifically based some of the decisions around um, uh, curfews in the evening and mask wearing outside and all these things that perhaps, you know, you could argue did stay in for, for longer or shouldn't have been in place at all. But by and large, uh, the measures work. And I can tell you, Victorians, um, you know, myself included, didn't think we'd get to the point of having zero cases, you know, maybe one day here or there, but not for... Uh, you know, a month, we wouldn't reach this point of elimination. And I do think there needs to be credit where it's due for Dan Andrews in weathering a lot of pressure, let's not forget, during uh, the the, the height of uh, this political um, standoff uh, to stick to his guns and, and see it out. It's a very good point because it's it's kind of the difference. It's it's a popularity that he may now have and and indeed had before going through this process. There's been a fair bit of support for Dan Andrews as a as a premier, but the decision to hold that lockdown and to do it so strongly and for so long was the opposite of populism. It was not an easy decision to take. It was not an easy decision to maintain. And he fronted the media every day through that whole period. It was really quite extraordinary uh, to to watch um, politics and public policy playing out in such a way was really something quite novel in Australia. And um, as you say, it looks like voters are now rewarding the, yeah. the government for that. Um, but um, Yeah, look, they, they, they are. Easy. I think I think Dan Andrews, though, is also a master politician. And, you know, while he did front the daily press conference, exhausted questions, he'd be up there for an hour or more every day. He was also the master at not answering some very legitimate, straightforward, basic questions. <laughs> I mean, you know, still to this day, the fact that, the government can't answer who made decisions around uh, its own decisions around using uh, private security and hotel quarantine is quite staggering. Let's face it, that a government can't answer, uh, you know, how how it functioned uh, on a critical moment like that. Um, but look, yes, he, he weathered that political pressure. Uh, certainly, it was piled on from the business community and the federal government, from Josh Frydenberg in particular. Uh, and I think right now he certainly, um, yes, still will be criticised for business for going too hard too long. But the general public, the general public, I think, are, are very much behind him right now. Let's just take a very quick break and be back in a moment. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. 
Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, let's uh, go across the political divide and look at the situation facing Labor, which is uh, federally, that is, uh, which is a a slightly more troubling one for the Labor Party. Uh, There is growing talk around the place about uh, the leadership of Anthony Albanese, whether he's going to survive, whether he should survive, whether Labor has a realistic chance of, uh, of winning the next election, which could come within 12 months. It may not come till uh, 2022, but it's, uh, there's a wide expectation that it's uh, likely toward the, the, you know, in the second half of 2021. So what do you think? Is Al- Albanese in a, uh, a difficult spot now, David, as a result of COVID and as a result of uh, the way other issues are playing out, things like climate change? I think opposition leaders uh, are always in, in a difficult spot, uh, and that's no different for Anthony, Anthony Albanese. But perhaps if we just look back at 2020 for uh, you know this particular opposition leader at this particular time, uh, look, I, I probably give more credit to Anthony Albanese than than some other commentators here, this was always going to be an incredibly tough balancing act for an opposition leader uh, to show national cooperation during uh, an unprecedented crisis on the health and economic front, uh, not to undermine, um, you know, the, the sort of messages that were needed to be delivered and needed to be responded to by the Australian community, um, you know, not to undermine that confidence essentially in the whole national cabinet process. Uh, but at the same time, hold the government to account where it needed to be held to account. And I do think Albanese deserves credit on a couple of fronts. Uh, yes, he did support in large part uh, you know, the government's um, decisions, the decisions around closures, the decisions around rolling out support and made sure all of that passed through Parliament rapidly. Um, but he did hold them to account on a few things. Uh, you know, he called on them to do the JobKeeper package or some sort of wage subsidy package earlier than they did it. Uh, he called out, and I should have touched on this earlier, the aged care failure of the Morrison government as well and really highlighted and I think put a lot of pressure on the government to lift its game uh, in relation to what we were seeing in aged care, which was clearly a federal government responsibility and failing uh, during this crisis. Um, you know, there are other issues along the way, like robot and so on that Bill Shorten have highlighted, but related to this pandemic, I think Anthony Albanese, by and large, did probably as well as any opposition leader could during a period like this. Um, you know, yes, there's still going to be pressure to come in the recovery phase about how to get that right. And we can argue, you know, about whether Labor's struck the right balance there. But I do think in large part, he probably did strike uh, more or less the right tone in you know, pressuring the government uh, at the same time as providing that cooperation that was uh, that was vital Moving into next year, yes, I, I do think he is going to face um, increasing pressure if Labor's primary vote in particular, that's the number to watch, uh, remains as low as it has been now for quite some time. Um, you know, already there's talk about you know, other options, other possibilities, who might be able to do a better job, but I don't think there's a clear answer to any of that just yet. And I think the next few months, usually a quiet time in politics, though, uh, can still be a really testing time for an opposition leader. Uh, how he 
performs over the um, the next few months, I think will really be critical as to his survival. Yeah, you're right. It's a, it's a sort of by definition an insecure job. It's often described as the worst job in or the hard, hardest job in politics being the federal opposition leader, particularly so during a, a time of national crisis of, a, of an exogenous threat like this. Uh, and uh, the opposition has really played the Team Australia game uh, of, uh, of getting in, being supportive, not, not being unnecessarily um, divisive about things. As you say, it was quite critical in, in some of the, the – the quite, quite important in some of the, um, the key decisions that have been taken, mm-hmm. including JobKeeper, which is arguably – I mean, as, as has been pointed out by numerous people, it's the single greatest injection of cash the Commonwealth has ever, ever done in Australia's history. So it was – uh, something Labor was calling for for some time, and 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 the opposite, and so the government at that point was uh, initially saying that it was inappropriate, it was not the right way to go, and mm-hmm. then it eventually uh, went down that path. And the same could be said for uh, for Job Seeker, for um, you know having a Job Seeker allowance. Um, so yes, that's it's it, you know you don't get a lot of points it seems for being constructive, but with the, the nation really needed that level of constructiveness, and uh, and you don't you don't get the attention. The, the, the that, author- that's the issue. You don't get any attention really Correct. during uh, you know a long period of this year. Um, there's there's just not that much interest in what the opposition uh, thinks. He, he was denied a, t- a seat at the national cabinet table. He wasn't you know, making these really important decisions that Australians were tuning in for. You know, people paid attention to their premiers more than they've ever paid attention to these people, uh, not to mention the prime minister as well. And that just makes it a very tough environment for any opposition leader to get any sort of cut through. Yes. Now, one of the, uh, I guess, the political orthodoxy, one of the orthodoxies that's been circulating around Canberra is that, yes, but after after the crisis has passed, there'll still be the long economic tail from this from this crisis, when the government's dealing with you know high unemployment and uh, you know business failures and the like, you know the political mood will change. Now even that is uh, is, is quite difficult to see at this stage. Uh, the Reserve Bank admits that unemployment will probably stay higher than is desirable for longer, and that wages will remain flat, uh, which is you know has been a, a sort of a blight on the Australian economy for some time now. But we're also seeing quite significant recovery in the economy. So even the background conditions that might give an opposition, uh, you know, some um, some fertile ground to work with in terms of, uh, uh, you know, criticising the government, even that's actually uh, um, perhaps uh, not working to the opposition's favour. Yeah, I th- look, I think there there clearly have been mistakes uh, from Anthony Albanese as well uh, this year. One of them, I think, was the uh, what's the word overly. Um, uh, well, even a juvenile attempt to label the recession the Morrison recession. Uh, yeah. I, I just think that sort of missed the mark and they probably dropped off, well, we're technically now out of recession anyway, but uh, I, I think they've dropped off using that phrase uh, as much. But I, I think Labor and Anthony Albanese would be far better now and certainly uh, in the early months of next year to start articulating ahead of the May budget what sort of reforms Australia needs to see um, if, if we are to build back better or stronger or better than you know we were heading into this pandemic, this has been the the, the great argument of Labor in the big picture has been that well you know all of this debt and this economic crisis you can't just blame on the pandemic. Yes, the, the, the you know the main reason we're in this crisis is because of the pandemic, but in Labor's view there are these problems after so many years of the coalition government that have that have left uh, vulnerable workers in insecure work. I think Labor really needs to get in the game now 
because we could be less than 12 months out from an election of explaining how we do need to reform the economy, to fix these problems of insecure work, to fix these problems of uh, vulnerable workers uh, not getting a fair deal. Uh, now is the time, I think, to start laying that out. The government, its response to this pandemic has really been about emergency support, uh, you know, JobKeeper, JobSeeker, even the tax breaks and investment uh, incentives for business in, in the budget. We're yet to really see lasting reform come from the government and I think even a reluctance to uh, to go down that path. Even the industrial relations changes we'll see next week I don't think are going to be you know, what you would call major reform, perhaps not really much reform at all. Labor needs to get back into that game. And, uh, you know, I know... Uh, there are some burnt fingers after last year's uh, last year's uh, election. Um, we're going too far on some of the tax reform fronts, but I don't think they can abandon the field, particularly given what's happened over the last 12 months. Now's the time to start talking about that reform. Yeah, it's a very good point. Uh, Sally McManus from the ACTU was making a similar point yesterday, not directly, but, but uh, very much uh, highlighting a point you just made about how the pandemic, how the crisis has exposed weaknesses in the economy, particularly a lot of insecure work, uh, the casualisation of so many areas of the economy and, and how vulnerable that has made people feel. And vulnerability is not... Uh, um, you know, it's, it's not an ideal political background condition for a government to win. So there is probably some space for Labor to to really get back to tours there, to get back to its very much uh, its its most uh, fundamental values in terms of protecting uh, employment rights uh, for you know for people in uh, particularly low income brackets. The other area, of course, is climate change. Now, climate change is um, uh, you know. The dynamics of this have changed quite dramatically. It certainly feels that way as a result of the the end of the Trump administration, mm -hmm. uh, Biden's coming in, taking the US back into the Paris Accord, appointing John Kerry as global envoy on climate. This has induced some panic, it seems to me, in, in the commentariat in some places. Uh, do you think this will embolden Labor to um, more quickly get back to naming its 2030, 2035 targets? Do you think it was even as important an issue at the last election as some would say? You think it should. You think it should give them a bit more courage uh, at least to um, finalise a plan. I think politically it probably wouldn't be a bad idea to settle on a position and, and stop the freelancing uh, from those who are arguing for and against 2030 or 2035, as would I think be more likely, uh, you know, interim yeah. targets. Uh, we know their position on 2050, net zero, Albanese, uh, great, was very quick out of the blocks, I think, in his leadership in uh, in seeing where the global um, movement was on this and, indeed, the, the, all the states and territories, business groups and so on, everyone's behind it except the Morrison government, it seems. So I think he was, you know, very um, deft uh, in, in, in moving on that promptly. But I, I do think it would probably help in the new year to settle what the interim position is for Labor uh, and indeed the mechanism, how they intend to uh, achieve any of these targets because otherwise the, the public debate will continue and I do think that's, you know, been one of the um, one of the vulnerabilities, one of the soft spots for Albanese and for Labor this year, no doubt about it. Um, look, there's no doubt that we are in a moment now and probably the best moment in, you know, some five years uh, when it comes to encouraging science for action on climate change. Uh, the election of Biden, his appointment of John Kerry, the positioning that uh, we're seeing from Boris Johnson, uh, you know, China as well, a willingness to embrace a 2060 net zero uh, target, other countries, Japan and so on, getting on board with the 2050. So, yes, the, the momentum feels like it's there right now. 
Um, and, and you do see the signs from uh, Morrison as well that he's positioning the shift, maybe even to supporting the net zero by 2050 target himself before the next election. Some in his ranks think he will do that. Uh, we'll see. Um, but yes, I do think Anthony Albanese needs to stay ahead of this debate uh, and probably settle the, the position within his own ranks. Wouldn't be a bad idea. Look, just before we leave Albanese, uh, Labor is staring down the barrel of a fourth straight loss. Mm. That's a pretty chilling thing for any uh, party of government to consider, to contemplate. That's, that, that does really make it very serious. When you, when you put it like that, if, if they are not in a position in the early part of next year, let's say in the first quarter of next year, they're not making headway. Does the party stick with Anthony Albanese? I know the rules have changed, uh, which supposedly make it harder to uh, replace a leader and, and so forth, but um, it's a pretty chilling prospect, the idea of um, – and, and when you think about it, this is the same party in government – I'm talking about the coalition now – the same party that in 2013-14 produced that stinker of a budget and which had all those other problems, you know, right through Choppergate and there have been so many scandals that have uh, have happened with this government and yet this same party has been continuously in power ever since then, since 2013 and the numbers don't look very favourable for Labor now in terms of winning that election. As you say, things can change. Uh, but um, I'm wondering, what, what's your what's your guess about whether the, uh, the Labor Party caucus will stick with the leader or or panic and make a change? Yeah, you're right to highlight the longevity of this coalition government. The, the length of time and the number of elections that Labor's been in the in the wilderness uh, on the opposition benches. I mean, there was a moment this week in Parliament when up in the public gallery there sat uh, Joe Hockey. Uh, he was visiting for the day. And it was just a little reminder that, and you mentioned that 2014 budget there, the horror budget that you know set in train, really the the you know uh, what, what led to the demise of um, of Tony Abbott and Joe Hockey and, and so on. Um, but a little reminder of just how long they have been uh, in power for. It just feels like a lifetime ago. Um, Labor, you're right. Can't really afford another election loss. Those who say. Uh, you know, well, Jim Chalmers should sit it out, bro. You know, they're heading to lose this election. He's better off waiting for, you know, a chance when they might win. I just think that sort of defeatist thinking is really problematic for a party that's lost three elections on the trot. If they're really thinking about throwing away a fourth with a view to, you know, protecting their best assets for a go at the fifth, um, yes, you've lost a generation of... um, uh, of Labor talent sitting in opposition there who'll never have a shot at the at time in the ministry. What will the Labor caucus do? I'm always loath to guess where a party might go with these things. It is very hard uh, to know. I, look, I wouldn't write Anthony Albanese off, uh, as some have. I think um, this has been, as I mentioned earlier, a really tough year for any opposition leader. Uh, I do think the next few months, the, the first few months of next year are going to be critical uh, in terms of how he sets the party up, whether he shows any boldness when it comes to economic reform, whether he is willing to throw everything out trying to win this election, because Scott Morrison won't be easy to beat. We can say that with certainty. Um, and, and whether the party judges that Anthony Albanese is the best bet to go up against him, uh, or whether they'd be better with someone else, whether a woman in particular might be a much tougher opponent for the likes of Scott Morrison uh, than another you know, uh, middle-aged bloke, uh, I just wonder whether there are going to be hard heads there who do think about what is going to be the best option 
to try and bring down a pretty popular Prime Minister. And that would take the right of the Labor Party, because that woman would be Tanya Plibersek, mm. and that would take the right of the party making a decision that uh, seems unlikely, I would have thought, abandoning abandoning the right for, you know, like going to another left-wing candidate. Yeah, the, the, the concern about Tanya Plibersek would be how does she win back Queensland? She's another uh, left-wing MP from a neighbouring seat to Anthony Albanese, so, you know, what are you really getting? I, I hear all of that. Um, and, you know, uh, the, the talk about a Tanya Plibersek, Jim Chalmers uh, partnership, uh, you know, is one that's quietly muttered uh, in, in no particular order, leader or deputy leader, that would have to be sorted out, that one can help in Queensland, the other might, um, you know, wrong foot Scott Morrison. So I just think facing a female opponent would be a particular challenge for, for Scott Morrison right now. Um, but, you know, there's no perfect candidate. That's That's the bottom line. Uh, and that probably works in Anthony Albanese's uh, favour right now. But, you know, if, if he can get moving in the next few months of next year with a recovery in the in the sales of the Australian economy, uh, that's the time to really start laying out how he would do things differently and exciting the Australian public about uh, an alternative future. It's really interesting the situation Labor finds itself in, though, because if you think about, um, I mean, you know, we've been talking about the the low poll standing of Labor, uh, but think about what's happened over this year. We've had elections in the Northern Territory, in the ACT, and in Queensland, and Labor governments have been re-elected in all three. Um, so, the, in Queensland, as you say, it's the, like the, the the real problem child for Labor federally, but uh, it's re-elected a Labor government there, you know, quite decisively. So, um, yes, there, there's, they can take some comfort from that, but as you say, a lot of it comes down to Labor's primary vote federally. That primary vote languishing in the low to mid-30s is just not enough to uh, to win government. No, and look, you know, Australians, and, and I think Queenslanders in particular, have shown over many years their willingness to discern between state and federal, uh, to vote one way at a state level, another federally. Peter Beattie uh, ruled for a long time uh, while John Howard was in federally. Um, so it doesn't easily translate into uh, you know, federal success for Labor in Queensland. And don't forget Anastasia Palaszczuk too, repositioned very swiftly on the Adani mine, approved another coal mine. So uh, that that would be a, a, a difficult, th- a more difficult thing, I think, for Anthony Albanese to show pro-coal uh, credentials in the way that Palaszczuk did. But, you know, look, it, it, it's, it's possible for him. It's just tough. It's, it's really tough in, in the political environment. A- economy in recovery, um, Morrison seen, uh, rightly or wrongly, but I think seen to have done a good job this year in in handling this whole crisis. It is going to be difficult for him, and I think not an election, whenever it is, uh, that he can be timid about. I think boldness is going to be required if Labor's to have any chance. All right, now just one final topic: China. It's the uh, you know it's the the mega problem of the end of this year. It seems the relationship with uh, our major trading partner is. Um, you know, just going further and further south, the war of words are continuing. How do you think that will play out politically? Politically, I think um, there's nothing but support for uh, a, a tougher and tougher line or response uh, to China's bullying and intimidation, which is is, is what it is. Uh, I think, um, you know, you, you're going to have uh, business leaders, you're going to have those in industries directly affected like winemakers barley growers and so on, who will complain that Australia's got it wrong, that our rhetoric's been over the top, that we didn't need to go as hard as we had on things like calling for an inquiry into the virus and so on, uh, that that's cost them in their hip pocket, which it you know arguably has. 
but I do think generally the public is very much behind, um, you know, the, the and, and it is bipartisan, uh, the position Australia is taking in response to all of this, that we're not going to back down, we're not going to concede on any of these 14 grievances that China has with uh, with Australia. And, and clearly this week's, uh, you know, quite offensive tweet from the Chinese foreign ministry in regards to the Australian soldier um, backfired if it was to have any, if the aim here was to in any way sway the Australian public on this. It, it really did go, uh, you know, right to the heart of uh, what is often regarded as uh, a national reverence for the soldier and so on. So I, I don't think, uh, you know, public opinion is... Um, softening at all on this, quite the opposite. Um, that doesn't mean, uh, yes, politically, sure, he might be on a winner here, Scott Morrison, but that doesn't mean uh, in, a, in a policy sense uh, or a national interest sense um, this is going to be a winner for him at all. I think things are going to become even more difficult with China in 2021 um, and the way out of this is completely <laughs> unclear to me, uh, you know, and I don't think a lot of strategic thinkers do have many easy answers as to how to fix this problem. It's going to hurt us more on an economic front uh, and it um, you know, is, is clearly having to require a rethink on our strategic positioning as well. So this will remain one of the big national problems, I think, as we head into next year. Yes, I notice. I mean, as you say, it's very hard to see how it's going to be resolved. The lines of dialogue are simply not open at the moment. Ministers uh, aren't talking to their counterparts. The Prime Minister's not talking to his counterpart. Um, or not able to talk is, is the more accurate way to put it. Uh, I noticed that uh, the Prime Minister uh, tried to explain Australia's position on WeChat and that has been blocked in China, the Chinese saying that uh, they felt that um, it was um, potentially confusing for Chinese readers. Um, so their commitment to uh, to any sort of balance in this seems to be, uh, uh, well, zero at the moment. So, yes, the bleak situation, and it does have uh, quite significant economic implications for Australia, but at this stage it remains strongly bipartisan. David, thanks so much for spending some time talking to us about the overall situation in Australia, the, the political year that uh, has been 2020, and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again in um, in 2021, which is coming on us much faster than we thought. An absolute pleasure, Mark. Thank you, and uh, a very happy Christmas and New Year. Thank you very much. Cheers, David. And that's Democracy Sausage for this week. Look forward to talking to you again next week. 